Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore new legislation seeking to improve outcomes for new mothers. And we hear how organizations that help young people struggling with homelessness are adapting during the pandemic. Many of them didn't come out to the normal places where we could usually connect with them. Plus, we talk with the new food editor at 5280 Magazine about the many ways food unites people across cultures. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Colorado's legislative session is set to wrap up by the middle of June. Lawmakers still have a lot to deliberate in the coming weeks, including a package of bills aimed at preventing deaths among pregnant women and to improve outcomes for babies and new mothers. Data reveals that maternal death rates in Colorado and across the nation have gotten worse over the past decade, and those outcomes are even more dire for women of color. The slate of three bills under consideration, dubbed the birth equity package, would, among other things, require more extensive tracking of pregnancy data, including the disparity in outcomes among white women and women of color. Here with more on these bills is Jennifer Brown, who's been following this for the Colorado Sun. Jennifer, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me on, Erin. So before we talk about the bills, I just want to outline the issue a bit. The rate of maternal mortality in Colorado has doubled since 2008. Many of us might think that means just only women dying during childbirth, but it really encompasses more than that, right? Right. They refer to it as pregnancy-associated deaths. So what we're counting here are women who have died during pregnancy, during childbirth, and also during that whole year postpartum um, up until their baby is one year old. And I think that's because researchers have found that, you know, what happens after pregnancy is really related to that whole major event in a woman's life. So it's all of that time period. And then just to dig into what prompted these bills at the Capitol, there was a 2019 report from the state's Maternity Mortality Committee, and it had some very sobering findings about maternal health and outcomes. What do we know about the report? The state has had for a long time this group called the Maternal Mortality Committee. And in 2019, it became more of an official committee and was given some very specific duties by the legislature to get at maternal health in Colorado and the disparity between ethnic groups and socioeconomic groups, et cetera. And the report is really quite interesting and startling to me anyway. First of all, the number one cause of death for pregnant women and then the year postpartum is suicide in Colorado. The second leading cause of death for these women is accidental overdose. The other shocking thing is that the report revealed that in Colorado, a Native American woman is almost five times more likely to die during that period than a non-Native woman. Um, this, the state is still working on some stats to figure out what 
the statistics are for Black women and other women of color. So there are now three bills in this package, right, addressing maternal health. Is there a main sponsor of these bills? And then how would these bills address the problems? So the main woman leading the charge here is Senator Janet Buckner. She's a Democrat from Aurora, and she refers to these three bills as the birth equity package. She's also the same person who sponsored legislation to kind of ramp up this um, mortality committee that I talked about. So these bills do so many things. Um, They are very wide ranging. Um, They do a lot to improve access to midwifery, um, which is a route that, you know, more women of color choose um, when they have a baby. So one of the things it does is encourages, let's use that verb, um, insurance companies to reimburse midwives at the same rate that they would be reimbursing physicians who attend births. So that's a big deal. It also has a lot in these bills about collecting more data. Like, as I said, on, you know, Black Coloradans, Latina women who are having babies and what their outcomes are compared to the rest of the population. It empowers the Civil Rights Commission to collect reports about mistreatment during pregnancy and birth and compile that data. It allows certified professional midwives um, who do not have nursing degrees to still practice at birthing centers in Colorado. One of the main provisions that stood out to me, uh, especially knowing how important the 12 months are after giving birth, is that the bill would extend Medicaid coverage for 12 months postpartum. Yeah, I would say this is the single biggest thing that would come out of these three pieces of legislation. So right now, if you're a pregnant woman who you can qualify for Medicaid just for your pregnancy um, under a different set of rules that are beyond the just being low income. So there's a lot of women who get on Medicaid to give birth. Well, the current system kicks them off after about two months. So your baby's two months old, you lose that coverage. So what this would do is extend that time frame to 12 months. And, you know, this is not just for medical care. This is for mental health therapy and substance abuse treatment. And, you know, I read that anxiety and postpartum depression are like the biggest health issues that face a new mom. So this is seen really as key to breaking down this disparity problem for women. The bill's also have a focus on unwanted medical interventions during childbirth. I'm not sure if that falls under the mistreatment while giving birth aspect that you mentioned. You write about one of the women who testified during the hearing. She described feeling powerless during her own birth process to stop an episiotomy. And then afterwards, she felt completely ignored by the hospital. Basically, she talked of, you know, giving birth in a hospital in Colorado and, you know, not knowing anything was going wrong. Everything seemed fine. And then all of a sudden realizing that her doctor and the nurses in the room were preparing to do an episiotomy and, and cut her and use some kind of vacuum device to get the baby out. And she testified that she was screaming no, and she was trying to hold her legs closed. But of course, she had had an epidural and, you know, couldn't really have control over um, her legs. I mean, her husband was in the room and crying and um, very traumatizing. And she felt powerless during those moments. But also afterward, when she tried to say something, she tried to speak up and 
instead what happened is the hospital said, stop defaming us and you're no longer allowed to get care here. And they just brushed her off. So her testimony, I think, was in for two reasons. One, um, you know, to help pass these laws so that women have more rights and either rights in the delivery room or rights to complain afterward and have someone actually take down their statement and record that. But also just, you know, to have that data so that we know what's going on. What are the prospects for these bills at the state house for the birth equity package? Are they on track? Are they likely to pass? I think they are likely to pass. You know, it's never over till it's over, right? But they're they're pretty much cruising along. You know, one of them is near the end and, you know, could be to the governor in a couple of weeks. The other ones have passed their first hearings and they have wide support, especially from Democrats who are running things over there this year. Jennifer Brown is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to her reporting on this where you can go in more detail at our website, KUNC.org. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Erin. In 2012, the High Park Fire west of Fort Collins burned more than 87,000 acres. At the time, it was the state's largest wildfire, destroying 259 homes and claiming one life. Eight years later, the Cameron Peak Fire burned more than twice as much land, becoming the largest in Colorado history. During both events, one local program sifted through the ashes to help out firefighters and to create art. KUNC's Stacy Nick has more. Tim O'Hara has been a commercial photographer in Colorado for years, a career spent capturing images of beauty. But when the High Park Fire began, practically in his own backyard, O'Hara and his colleague photostylist Lori Joseph witnessed images that were hard to look at. We had a front row seat for the fire. So we'd go out during breaks and we'd look and she goes, we have to do something about that. And I said, well, we can't do anything about it. We're not firefighters. She goes, no, no, after it's over, we have to come up with something to make good of the bad. And I thought that by creating something from something bad would be good. And I thought, well, what could we use? And the charcoal seemed to be the best thing because it was so readily available. And that's how the Ashes to Art project came to be. Since it was the largest fire in Colorado's history, we felt it was appropriate to have artists all over the country produce art with the ash from the fire and auction it off and donate it to the Poudre Canyon Fire Department. They put the entire project together in just four weeks and raised $16,000 for the department. Later, they published a book featuring photos of all the artwork. Flash forward to 2020, after the Cameron Peak Fire raged through northern Colorado for nearly four months, they decided to resurrect the project. But this time, just like the fire itself, O'Hara says they went much bigger. We had like 62 likes on our Facebook page back in 2012. We have 6,000 now. And bidding for good where our auction's being held, they had 14,000 members on there. Now they have 14 million. So... We have no idea what's going to be this year. We hope it blows up. The auction, which benefits the Poudre and Wrist Canyon Volunteer Fire Departments, will feature donated art from every state in the country, as well as one piece from Great Britain. That willingness to help a community that's not your own isn't surprising to Joseph, who's based out of Maryland. Some of these people have never traveled to Colorado. Some of them will never know a fire in their life. But the idea that they know that this is a good project to give to and to create for, it's not only benefiting the firefighters long term, but it's also benefiting the people who are participating in the process. It's lifting them up. It's lifting everybody up. And the art isn't just a bunch of charcoal drawings like you might expect. The artists have gotten creative with how they use the ashes, 
Works range from paintings to pottery to even quilts. This to me is the coolest piece. Here's a knife, handmade, he makes his own knives. And there's ash embedded in the handle of the knife. And then in the display case is ash rosin as the background. So it serves as a shadow box. That's the kind of thing to me, you look at that and you're like, how do you, who thinks of that? <laughs> when they first decided to do the project, Tim O'Hara and Lori Joseph never imagined that they'd be doing it a second time. So I asked if they thought this might become an annual thing. I hope you don't make it an annual thing, but when you have fires that burn through two snowstorms and go out on December 3rd, we can have fires in December in Colorado ever. It's, it's a year-round thing now. It's just more and more strains on the, I mean, it's $180 million to fight the Cameron Peak fire. That was only one of those fires in Colorado. So we're barely scratching the surface, but we're helping out the people that are volunteering. I think we all have skin in the game. This is, this is a shared land. Um, this could happen anywhere. And I think that maybe the pandemic has brought that to home, that bad things can happen anywhere. Knowing that summer wildfires will return, and so will the need for help, the Ashes to Art project may just rise up again. Stacy Nick, KUNC, Fort Collins. The Ashes to Art auction is happening now on the site Bidding for Good. You can find more about the effort and see photos of some of the artwork on our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Across the Mountain West, many states have high per capita numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Colorado is at the top, with Nevada next, which means hundreds of unsheltered youth are sprinkled throughout our region. And the pandemic has made it much more challenging for organizations to connect and share resources with those who need them. Stephanie Serrano recently checked in with one shelter in our state to see how they've fared during the past year. The place has 20 beds for young people between the ages of 15 and 20 who are experiencing homelessness. Every morning, the youth meet with Karen Henschel. She's an education and employment case manager. Happy Monday. Thanks for showing up. Usually, they set an intention by choosing a word to follow for the day and talk through short-term goals. But on this particular day, they were talking about something that's on everyone's mind. How did you go get vaccinated? How do you guys feel about that? No. No. Free. Yeah. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, the place changed their normal procedures and opened its doors 24-7. Shauna Kempinen is the executive director. She says early on in the pandemic, the outreach team had trouble finding youth. Many of them um, didn't come out to the normal places where we could usually connect with them. Let's say, for example, the library. Um, or the parks, because there were so many things closed um, that youth didn't have a reason to come out. This forced the team to look in different areas, like encampments. In normal times, they wouldn't try to reach people in tent communities. If a young person or any person is staying outside in a tent, um, that is their home. We might not think of it as as a home, uh, but for them, it is their home. And so we tended to not go up to a tent and yell, right? I mean, that would scare me if someone came to my window and just started yelling at me. They knew the kids were out there and had to find them. But just in recent weeks, as case numbers have gone down, they've gone back to their pre-pandemic model. All right, do you guys have questions, comments, concerns for me? No. No. 
Everyone heads out after the morning meeting. Coming back for lunch is optional, but in order to secure a bed for the night, being back by 5.15 is mandatory. Unless you have a job. Like, if it's an essential thing, then you can stay out. That's Hunter Locklear. Shortly after celebrating his 19th birthday in January, he found himself sleeping in the streets. So you left home only a few months ago? Mid-February. And you felt like that was the best decision for you? Yeah. Do you want to share why? Eh, not really. When he was living on the streets, the pandemic was the last thing on his mind. I was constantly worried about where I was going to put my stuff. Like his video games. See, Hunter is a gamer. They're his escape. I like how it's like, um, like a different place to be, you know? Like you don't have to go anywhere to have a new experience. You can just have it in your hand. During the start of the pandemic, many youth had a hard time finding resources and shelters. And to make matters worse, some also lost their jobs. These days, though, many young people are getting financial help from the federal government. That's right, stimulus checks from the CARES Act. Hunter is now getting his stimulus checks loaded on a prepaid MasterCard. Thanks to this process, Hunter now has a bank account. Still, he hates the fact that people tend to stereotype homeless people as lazy and looking for handouts. In fact, Hunter just got hired to work at Wendy's. He's stoked. Like, I'm new, so I still haven't learned how to do everything, but I know how to use the fryer, I know how to use the grill, I make the bacon, I'm learning how to make the sandwiches. Karen, the case manager at the place, takes me back to a recent encounter at the courthouse. She takes a deep breath before sharing. I heard um, a police officer say something about how they're unmotivated and lazy. And it's like, mm, that it's not about them being not motivated. It's about them not having the foundation and the skills and know that they deserve all the dignity and worth that everybody else has. And that's what we're here for. Karen was a single mom and raised three girls. She says she knows what it's like to need help raising children. And she says it takes an entire community to support these youth. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Stephanie Serrano. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You'll find this and other stories at our website, KUNC.org. 5280 Magazine, based in Denver, is known for its coverage of Colorado's culture and food scene. Now, for the first time, an Asian-American woman is at the helm of the magazine's dining coverage. Colorado Editions' Tess Novotny spoke with Patricia Kalthamrong about her new role as food editor at 5280 and how her love for food has shaped her personal life and her career. She began by sharing how she first got into food journalism. Well, I wanted to be a writer and a journalist since high school, and I went to journalism school at CU Boulder, but I didn't really start writing about Colorado when I worked at a travel marketing company that produced Colorado Tourism's vacation guides and website. During that time, I also realized how much I wanted to share stories about my family, particularly the food that my, my mother made that I loved so much. So I started a little food blog featuring 
recipes and the stories behind them, which led me to 5280. You recently wrote a lovely essay introducing yourself as 5280's new food editor, and in it you trace the origins of your love for food back to your family. You said, I inherited my big appetite from my parents, both of whom moved to Colorado from Bangkok, Thailand in the early 1980s. What did food mean to you and your family growing up? Food was always a huge part of my life because my parents, who are from Bangkok, like you said, had a gas station. They recently retired, but they had the gas station for almost 40 years. They worked 24-7, so mealtime was one of the only times we could be together and sharing food around the table was ultimately how you express love. And one of the only things that my parents had time for, and it, it kind of connected us to what they left behind in Thailand. Do you have a favorite dish that your family prepared? Oh my gosh, I have so many, but two of my favorites, my mom makes this pork belly stew um, that's braised pretty much all day in the crock pot and it's spiced with star anise, brown sugar and cilantro stems. It's so good. It leaves this like fatty, glossy sheen on your lips when you eat it and you eat it with rice. That is one of my all-time favorites. It's like a warm hug when you eat it. And then I also love every year during holidays, we didn't do it this year because of COVID, but we always do a huge hot pot meal where we all gather around the table and there's a huge cauldron of boiling broth and you just dip different ingredients in it. And mom always makes this really delicious, sweet, sour, spicy dipping sauce. How did eating food so far away from Thailand help you stay connected to your family's culture and heritage? Well, like a lot of kids who grew who grow up in immigrant families, I think you just kind of want to fit in and not seem different. And I grew up in Arvada, so there weren't a lot of Asian students at my school. So I, I wanted to seem as American as possible. And to me, that meant eating as many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, pizza and cheeseburgers. And I, I made my mom buy them and I feel terrible. And, you know, she was she understood. But in the end, I always came home and we always ate around the dinner table what they ate growing up in Bangkok. And it, it always brought me home the food that my mom made. And as I grew up, I realized how special that is and how it really connects you to others and is something that you should share because it's wonderful. In that same essay you recently wrote where you talked about like what food meant for your family, you also wrote that you initially weren't going to write a piece introducing yourself. Um, you said you prefer to work without fanfare, but you changed your mind when a fellow Colorado journalist of Asian descent reached out to you. What did they say to make you change your mind? A few journalists reach out to me, but the one that just... I just got so emotional and was so touched by it because she said how my promotion affected her and made her cry. And it just, I feel like, especially during this time um, when racial injustice is just part of our everyday lives, I'm, I feel so incredibly lucky to be a person of color in this role with the opportunity to represent the Asian American community and really 
maybe possibly make a change by making bringing more voices into the magazine. And I, I realized how important it is to represent my heritage and my roots and that of others as well. So that's why I wanted to write the essay because I, I feel like it's just such a dream and I'm super lucky to have it. What kind of change would you want to see both at 5280 and just in, in food writing and dining coverage in general? At 5280, we've always strived to make our coverage as inclusive as possible. But like any publication, there's always, always room for growth. And I hope that my roots, my life experience and perspective will help bring more voices into the pages of the magazine and onto 5280.com, like I said, and help us produce more stories that showcase the beauty of our differences because the stories I love writing and editing the most are the ones that showcase how food unites us. Like I realized growing up that my family's dishes could connect me with others and connect me with my family. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And I think, I hope we can get more coverage that's inclusive. So it gives people to opportunities, our readers to understand and appreciate the cultures of other Coloradans. Patricia Kalthamrong is the new food editor for 5280 Magazine in Denver. Patricia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, with the COVID-19 vaccine now widely available to anyone over the age of 16, we'll hear about efforts to get more of the state's Hispanic and Latino residents immunized. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.